0: Ladies and gentlemen, our guest tonight, the one and only, the great host of Freedom Aid Radio, the host of the Bot YouTube channel with so many millions of views that represent so many powerful epiphanies for so many people, the great intellectual leader for so many in the freedom movement who has shown the way for so many that have come to libertarianism only to realize that it is only the beginning of your journey in philosophy. I present to you the host of freedomainradio.com, Stefan Molyneux. Wow, I really feel I should have a tearaway shirt uh,
1: and confetti cannons and some sort of exotic dances behind me. Thank you for that very kind introduction. I'm looking forward to taking calls. There are really only two kinds of calls that I take, uh, the call of the wild and the call of nature. Hopefully it will be the former. I'm sure we'll get those from your listeners, but thank you so much. It's great to be back.
0: Yes. um, Well, no, Stefan, that was the part when... You, you were supposed to pull your pants down and run around the studio uh, to to introduce yourself to everybody. You didn't you didn't you didn't get that part of the script.
1: Well, given that I'm on a webcam uh, from the shoulders up, let's go with the "I have pants on" assumption. That probably is for the best for the nightmares of your listeners. So um, let's go with that as a possibility. And then that's,
0: that's, against, that's against the rules for Adam versus the man. You didn't know that. None. We're all dressed up from the waist up in the studio.
1: Well, it's a kilt, so I feel that I am a hairy-legged Marilyn Monroe perched over the uh, rising subway winds <laughs> of your listeners' imaginations, so do with that what you will.
0: Now, believe it or not, we actually have some serious topics to discuss tonight, and I am we do. really excited to have you on when we're, we're not rushed, because we, you have a documentary coming out, and I want to come back to that. Very excited that that your manifesto is taking documentary form. Very much looking forward to seeing that and promoting that. But there, there, you know, I've been on a, a bit of my own philosophical path lately in terms of looking forward to the next fifty to a hundred years and trying to combine what I know about philosophy, what I can observe about technology, what I know about human nature and social dynamics and government and social organization today, and. I can only describe what we're coming to as the asymptotes, you know, that, that all of these exponential growth curves of the human experience of computing power, of productive capacity, of technological accomplishments, they're just going to go vertical, man. It's going to be one, it, like it, it is it is I, we had Jeffrey Tucker on the show the other night and he compared it to, uh, you know, night and day that that it seems like the state of nature, everything leading up to maybe the past couple thousands of years was darkness, and then the sun just started to peak over the horizon. And in a sense, what we're experiencing now in 2012 is just, just a hint of the sun peeking over the horizon, and then it's going to be light. And human, the human experience is going to be totally different. We're going to take over the cosmos, and voluntarism will be, you know, as, as far distant a thought, because it'll be such an obvious assumption that it won't, even, it won't be any more relevant than you know, the basic principles of hygiene. How is, if, if this is true, if I'm right, that, that we're coming to this radically altered human experience, I, I can't see that libertarianism is, is still relevant. Or even, you know as, as you so uh, acutely point out, if the real cause of government as behavior is psychological disturbance— Peaceful parenting being the way. Is there even any point to advocating peaceful parenting as an intergenerational solution to the problem of statism when statism is going to be completely, ridiculously obsolete in two or three generations anyways?
1: So it's the idea that uh, technology is uh, creating a momentum of information and sharing and communication that are breaking down enough barriers that we can remove hierarchy? I just want to... I, I didn't see the show with Jeff Ducker. So no, 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 no,
0: no not, not hierarchy. But if you understand, as, as I, I believe you do, that, that statism... Like, you know, government doesn't exist. It is not something that is. It is a construct. It is something that we do as a, as a collection of behaviors of everybody who was a statist by voting or participating or going along with it. And that the root of it is psychological imbalance. And that one of the things that empowers us through technology is to have a better state of mental health. And, and, and I... I I fantasize about the days when we'll all have therapy robots in our living rooms. You know, like it'll just, oh, you know, anytime you, you, you express any unhealthy emotion, a little window will pop up and be like, would you like to talk about that? <laughs> and and, and, that, that, and, and, and I, every time I look forward to these trends, though, I stop and I think, look at how they're already happening today. Look at how technology first allowed us to have the leisure time to even ig- come up with the word psychology to recognize these things and then look at the way that the Internet provides a way for so many people to find therapy through anonymous communities or from just realizing that they're not alone.
1: Yeah, and I think also the degree to which science seems to be very clearly demonstrating the degree to which uh, early childhood trauma leads to a wide variety of of health and relational dysfunctions. And the state fundamentally is a relational dysfunction. It's an inability to negotiate, which has to end up creating a vacuum of authority. You know, like, why do people yell at their kids? Because they don't know how to negotiate with their kids. And why do kids bully other kids? Because they don't know how to negotiate and get what they want in a win-win scenario. I mean, if we get the market out to childhood, uh, I think we'll uh, we'll be a whole lot better off.
0: So is this uh, – do do, are you with me though? Is this – I mean do, do you see that this is, this is going to be happening in the next couple of generations? Whatever effect of positive mental health the internet has already had on society is going to be a thousandfold. I mean at what point can we assume how far down the road do we at least by our current understanding of psychology have a population that is 100 percent healthy?
1: <laughs> well, 100 percent maybe uh, aiming a little too high but um, uh, I would enough, say that – a state. Yeah. Um, I, I think that we can do it if we work really hard and promote the right values in society. Nothing happens automatically. You know, I was on a show last night and they said, well, where do you think society is heading? And I said, well, it, it's heading where the most committed, the most passionate uh, and the ones with the, the best arguments it's going where we want it to go. Well, I mean, I it's you know, it, if, if you're if, if you and I are on a train and I say, Hey Adam, where do you think this train is going? We you know, it's on a track and so it's gonna go someplace. But if I'm driving and you say, Hey Steph, where do you think this car is going? It's like, where do you want it to go? Let's turn the wheel and find out. So I think the society will go where we want it to go. If we work really hard, I think that it could be two generations. You know, 50 years, 60 years, if we work really hard. To promote peace and reason and win-win negotiations if we withdraw from aggression against children as as much as possible and if we uh, shun uh, those who are beyond recovery from a moral standpoint, like the sociopaths, the psychopaths, the people who don't have a conscience, you know, the 4% or whatever you want to count it, of people who literally don't have a conscience. If we try and isolate that gene from reproduction and keep it out of the social milieu, then I think we can do it relatively quickly. If we wait for a sort of evolution to happen, then it's going to be a lot longer.
0: Well, I, I agree that humanity has the ability to shape the form of history, and we can pull it in one direction or another. But... Are you completely rejecting the uh, what, what I understand is the Marxist dialectic of technology and economic circumstances being the greater determinants of economic organization and social organization? I think he said, what was it that the uh, you know the 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 the, the, pl- the steam engine gave us capitalism, and you know the uh, you know our agriculture gave us feudalism, that kind of thing.
1: No, I mean, I I mean the the causes of of the free market, I think, were fundamentally philosophical. i mean, it it was um it, it was a rediscovery of Roman law or the reapplicability of Roman law as we got an increasingly urbanized environment, uh, which gave rise to the intellectual class, which gave rise to the anti-clerical, and the anti-aristocracy anti-aristoc- class and so on, all of these things gave rise to the capacity. I mean, the printing press, uh, for heaven's sakes, gave rise to the capacity for ideas to matter, for ideas to be shared. And the better ideas won out and began to push back against the feudal aristocracy, uh, against the the feudal uh, clerical classes, and began to create room for win-win negotiations, for free trade. The medieval guilds were pushed back and destroyed, mercantilism in England in particular and in, um, in the northern. Than Scandinavian countries was pushed back in the 17th and 18th centuries. Free trade began to flourish because we had better ideas as, as a society, as a culture. And then, of course, you know, the natural retrenchment of the ruling classes gave us the 20th century, a bloody century of wars. And now we're just, we're just trying to push back, get better ideas out there, more consistent, more peaceful ideas and say, if you accept peace in this realm, why don't you accept peace in this realm? If you're against war, why aren't you against banking? If you're against theft, why aren't you against taxation?
0: Right, but if libertarianism as as a philosophy isn't so much an expression of preference but a discovery of something that is true, wouldn't you say that a, a tool is powerful for information sharing and discovering fundamental truths like the Internet would eventually lead everyone to those fundamental truths of, of voluntarism?
1: Well, but Adam, I think that's to argue that Only we get technology. Well, the bad guys get technology too, right? So what is it in in California now that the, the sheriffs are trying to get funding for drones to fly over, <laughs> you know, only for emergency response, never, ever to find, you know, these drones are going to have, like, face recognition technology, they're going to have infrared technology to figure out heat sensors and so on, to try and find the drug farms and all that kind of crap. So, all the technology that you and I and other, you know, virtuous night warriors of the coming dawn, we get, is fantastic, but the bad guys get it, and they usually get it first, and they have a much bigger budget for it, and they tend well, to direct a lot but, of its development, it's so I, I don't know that we can look at just one side of the equation.
0: If the- Bad guys are bad guys because of psychological deficiency. We know that that any negative behavior, anything less than meeting human beings from the perspective of of wanting to respect their individual humanity is less than productive for yourself and and is based on on some kind of psychopathy. Wouldn't it be true that when they get the technologies that are coming to make themselves better and healthier – they simply won't be bad guys anymore? It, it, at some point, doesn't the technology stop bad guys from existing in these terms if all of your definitions of bad guys are based on psychological deficiencies?
1: Well, so just help me understand how technology stops a bad guy from being a bad guy. I just want to make sure I understand okay, that.
0: Okay, well, you agree that bad guys are bad guys because of psychological deficiencies, correct?
1: Well, I think uh, that, that just to... Be mildly technical, there are sort of three components that seem to come together to produce a really, really bad person. Uh, one is there's some genetic predisposition. There are about 10 or 12 aggression genes. So if you have a genetic predisposition, usually some form of minor head injury plus abuse, then you get really, really bad guys. Now, sociopathy and psychopathy, I mean, I'm no psychologist, but my understanding is that these positions or these these traumas or these psychological states of mind are incurable because they don't actually seek a cure psychopaths and sociopaths kind of like not having a conscience and i can certainly imagine at times it might be quite a blessing and so i don't think they're going to cure themselves Uh, and you know the only thing i guess we could hope for is that either they don't breed or that they're somehow better parents than the way that they were parented or whatever
0: better parents exactly and so if, if, if there is a genetic predisposition, that might be a separate problem. But I would argue that a genetic predisposition does not necessarily, in any human being, necessarily manifest in them becoming a bad guy. I don't think any— and, and Agreed. Yeah. here. Okay, so any—
1: Yeah, And that, that, that's, that's very true. I mean, the, the genetic predisposition is not, does not manifest itself in personality without a whole bunch of other things, and I assume some level of choice in, in there as well.
0: All right, so if any human being can be raised in the right environment and be not a bad guy— Eventually, technology will give us the ability as parents to create a better environment for everybody, more so than the idea of I, advocating for peaceful parenting. I mean, uh, Spock's, Dr. Spock's book, right? Revolution in, in How Parenting Was Considered Globally, and, and brought so many people to be better parents because they were able to read a book. And they were able to get that attention to the process of being a parent. Well, that's a product of technology. That's a product of having the leisure time to do that compared to the state of nature when, you know, everybody was hunting and gathering for 16 hours a day. We come to the point where we're at today and we're able to be good parents. And instead of being in little tribes where whoever can pick up the biggest rock is in charge, we're where we're at today where bad guys are able to diffuse their bad guyism through government. Relatively few, in fact, fewer than ever before in human history, are committing violent acts against fellow human beings. We have the statistical demonstrations of that. This is the most peaceful time for you as an individual human being on this earth in terms of the actual violence that you're likely to be subjected to in your lifetime. And I can only see that all the motivations for statism, be they uh, psychological deficiencies or wants, uh, go away. When uh, first of all, you know, before we even get to this point that I'm, I'm, get, I'm, I'm hypothesizing is going to come about, that we will achieve a state of such great mental health that we won't have government. Uh, we will also have an incredible profusion of material goods that will make you know, you know the materialism that is a driving factor in statism irrelevant. So if I would, I would say that these things, while. Up to this point, or up to the sun coming over the horizon, you may be able to say that, yes, when Marx came up with this idea, it led to tens of millions of people being killed. It was that, and you can point to that origin, that one idea, that one source, led to this, the good work of the American founders in advancing humankind towards a state of greater liberty changed the game, moved the ball forward. And in the same sense, what I see coming in the next two or three generations with technology is going to address all of those problems and and be a much greater determinant of how free we are as a society than anything that we can do conscientiously. The fact that the Internet is here and that it is connecting all of us, that the technology is going to empower us to get what we want, we are going to get what we want, and in order to get what we want, we are going to realize that using coercion is unproductive. And I would say that while you can make that point in the case – that the Marxist dialectic is only half true, that in the future, and even right today, how society is organized is going to be more determined by technology and economic conditions, namely human, uh, computers that are far smarter than human brains, 3D printers in our homes, an absolute profusion of, of, of uh, physical wealth. Statism is going to be re- rendered obsolete by technology, not by academia or YouTubers or bloggers or podcasters. Well,
1: okay, I mean it's a, it's a very compelling vision and I would really like to let robots haul us over the bristly <laughs> spiky hedge towards a better future. The one thing that jumps into my mind is the idea that wealth is going to increase because I'm, as as you know, of course uh, over the past 30 or 40 years real wages have declined uh, with a massive Profusion and proliferation of technology, real wages have declined, and that doesn't even count the 85 odd trillion dollars of unfunded liabilities, the massive fiscal hole that that Western society, or at least the U.S. society, is hanging over Western society as a whole, with the possible exception of Canada. But um, we have uh, become poorer because, of course, the moment the government sniffs some sort of massive wealth production uh, engine, uh, it rushes into to tax and pillage it and use it as as a collateral to borrow against. So I don't know that the wealth is going to flow to the people as a whole. I think the wealth, it if it is, is generated, is going to flow up to the state.
0: What about quality of life? What about technological empowerment? What about the fact that you know, the, 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 car used to be the comparison, you know, now a hundred years ago, only the richest people had cars. Now, even, you know, the poorest dude in, in the country at least can get a beat up on a civic, right? That's the, 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 classic, well, what cell phones, like, Hey, it used to be that only rich people could get cell phones. Next thing, you know, everybody's going to have a, have one in their contact lens. So, I, and, and if it wasn't for the internet, I wouldn't have gotten to listen to the wonderful Stefan Molyneux podcasts about a free society that even got me on this philosophical journey in the first place at freedomainradio.com. So we go now to the phones. 203, you're on the air. What's your name? Where are you calling from? 203, go ahead, please. Got a question from the chat. All right. Well, we're going to be taking calls. If people want to join us, 567-314-1698. What's the question from the chat, Derek? Uh, Stefan, could you
2: describe the difference between the hierarchies that exist in crony capitalism today and the hierarchies that free market capitalism will bring forth, and if those hierarchies would be bad like it is seen today?
1: Yeah, I mean, you want to make sure that you don't use the same word for two opposite moral states, right? So you you wouldn't want to use the word rape for lovemaking and vice versa, or theft for charity. Those are very distinct moral states. It's really tough to use the word hierarchy for two opposing moral states. So the crony capitalist thing that occurs at the moment, and I'm not particularly blaming the, the big corporations for doing this, they have the responsibility and the drive to maximize profits, shareholder value, and so on. But what they do is they go to the government and they write legislation. They, re- they capture the regulatory agents and uh, agencies and they turn those regulatory agencies to enhance their own profits. It's classic rent-seeking, keeping out uh, all of the uh, competitors, particularly the young and the nimble and the, the cheap, uh, which is – basically locking the productive teenagers up in government schools so they don't, can't compete with the plumbers. And so you've got all of these companies using the power of the state to enhance their own income, to keep competition out, and to generally enrich their own pockets while bleeding the social body pretty much to a state of terminal whiteness. So that is the hierarchy that exists right now. Companies would never invest in armies because every company could invest in army. But if people are forced to pay for armies, police, regulatory agencies, then they will try and use that, capture that violence to enhance their own profits. In a free society, there will be – Of course, hierarchies, I mean, in terms of there probably will still be bosses and employees. But of course, remember uh, that employees are trained for 12 years straight to be drones, to be burger flippers, to be, uh, you know, the economic illiterates and legal illiterates and and entrepreneurial illiterates that the Prussian model of public school education, which we're all modeled on, was expressly designed for to, to build soldiers and to build factory workers. And that's still what it's doing. So if you get people coming out of public schools or sorry, if you get people coming out of free market schools with much better skill sets, with, um, uh, you know, work terms, with contacts and hierarchies will flatten out quite considerably, there will be much higher turnover of companies in a free market, right? So uh, the 20th century in America was relatively free, uh, at least up until the last couple of decades. And if the f- Fortune 500 companies, or sorry, the top 100 companies uh, that were around in 1900, like I think. Two or three of them are still around right now, uh, and so there's a huge amount of turnover, uh, and and you know wealth rises and falls. They used to call this um, shirt sleeves to shirts to shirt sleeves again uh, in three generations. You know the sort of arc of wealth. So there's a lot greater turnover. Those who are you know are on top will, will go back down to the bottom. Those who are on the bottom will climb their way back up. There's constant churning as we generally go up the hill of, of wealth. So there will be hierarchies, much greater flux. But the fundamental thing is that in a free in a free market. If you if you rise to the top, it's because you're Brad Pitt and you're really good at getting people to come and see your movies uh, or your abs or both. Uh, and so you know we don't look at at at, uh, at Brad Pitt and say, "My God, what a monster, evil capitalist, uh, robber baron!" No, we say, "Damn, I should do more sit-ups."
3: Yeah, it's it's frustrating to me the way people will uh, will idolize certain things like you know maybe like an actor or something and that's okay but then oh this other corporation they don't like is bad because they want profits but they like so many profit seekers out there it's like how can you possibly be so inconsistent
0: and when everybody has a 3d printer in their home they won't need to condition people to be factory workers anymore All right, we're going back to the phones now Nick you're on the air hey Adam how are you outstanding thank you so much for joining us
2: yeah, no problem. Okay, so I have two questions, but I'll ask the first one, and then if I have time for the second one. Um, the first one, it, it's basically, so your point with the whole technology thing, um, you you say like you know if we we're gonna have chips in our brain, it's gonna like the hive mind and that sort of thing, but you know at the same time, information is only good as information. It's not it's not good or evil. Like we can get bad information from the internet. We can get bad information from books. We can get bad you know like statist people like uh, you know we'll get like fucking. Um, I don't know Bill Maher talking on you know on his show and stuff, and, and so the point is you know just having that technology available to us isn't necessarily going to be good for you know for, for society as a whole.
0: Hold on a second, and, and, hold, know, on, I, wait, hold on a second. Yep, but what yeah, if but, what if what if it was the comparison is not there's good and bad information. The comparison is to back to when you know feudal times when the only source of comparable information was. The pastor and the Bible. And that was it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That was your only choice.
3: Don't people show a preference for truth over falsehood? Like, I mean, unless people are just, they're really into this certain falsehood because it fulfills something in them psychologically, Uh, you know, in general, on the internet, people look at their sources and things like that to determine whether or not something's good information. Right. Doesn't
0: even, even if it's more information as a whole, even if there's good and bad, doesn't that empower more good information to come to the top, Nick?
2: No, absolutely. But, you know, at the same time, look at The Matrix, you know, that movie. And and Steph made his, his whole video that I, I think really made me get into Steph was, you know, The mm. Matrix, mm-hmm. the, you know, how to break out of statism. And the point is that, you know, people are going to want to believe what they want to believe. And if they want to believe in statism, you know, and they're getting information that only validates what they want – and, you know, if this sort of technology was to be, like, implemented right now, if we were all of a sudden all able to do this, and we have the same the same mentality that we do now as a society, is that really going to help us move forward towards a stateless society?
0: Well, I think it can't help but change the mentality. Stefan? Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to mention something
1: you said, that if people really want to believe in the state. I mean, the reality is that any time there's propaganda... Propaganda is covering up the fact that people don't want to believe that shit. I mean, this is really important to understand. Like, there's no propaganda when you're 13 that says, I think it's really, you know, it's really important that I sit you down and watch this instructional video on how bodies of the opposite sex are really attractive to you, or the same sex, depending on how your pendulum swings. I mean, that just that just happens on its own. There's no propaganda. I didn't have to sit my daughter down, you know, to watch a nine hour government film saying sugar tastes really, really good. And, (laughs) and it's really, really important to stay up late, because all the fun happens right after you to go to bed, which is mostly me face planting on a desk and pretending I'm working. But um, so so people don't want to believe in the state. And, And you know that because there's a 12 year crater in people's minds of state propaganda. And so I think that's where people, they have no interest in the state, they don't believe in the state, they don't accept the state, they don't want the state. In the same way that we know that people don't want King Jung Il in North Korea as their leader, because they have to be terrorized, brutalized, frightened, you know, controlled and thrown in concentration camps and shot and starved, so that they will worship this guy or at least pretend to so wherever there's propaganda you know that that runs completely counter to what people actually believe and what they actually want aka sunday school so i think it's really important and people don't want to believe in the state if we can provide them alternatives that are rational and and cohesive and coherent then i think for some people it would be really scary and there's confirmation bias you know the liberals run to the liberal sites and the conservatives turn on fox and so on there's a lot of confirmation bias in the internet but at least the confirmation bias is personal rather than global to the the particular ruling elite. But um, uh, I think that's important. Some people, when you provide them an alternative, it's like you've just jackhammered uh, an elephant that was sitting on their chest and they didn't even know it. And they just can breathe for the first time in their lives. So I think just keep providing people great arguments, engaging uh, uh, instruction. And I think a lot of people will just run out from uh, from statism like you'd run out of a collapsing building, which is actually pretty close to the truth.
3: So you're suggesting that statism is sort of Caused from a desperation of a lack of alternatives to, you know, thinking about society and the way things should be organized or not organized. Uh, You you think it's just they don't have the, the, (laughs) they don't realize the options are there to think about differently?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, statism is is the result of propaganda. It, it's the result of being told that there's no violence. And if there is violence, you deserve it. And if there is violence and you do, don't deserve it, you better submit because there's some mythical social contract. And if you don't like any of that, then damn well leave the country. As if we can't say, well, why don't you people leave the country? We're not the ones waving guns around. But um, statism just simply is the result of propaganda, which is why you need government schools. Uh, nobody wakes up uh, believing that we need a monopoly of violence, uh, that we can protect our property by giving a monopoly of violent people the right to strip our property at will, that we can protect our freedom by giving the right uh, to a minority of violent people to incarcerate and, and torture us at will. Uh, that's None of that makes any sense at all. And when things don't make any sense but the majority of people believe them, you just have to look for the bootstamp of propaganda on people's forehead, and that's all it results from. And some people grow to love their propaganda, you know, like they, they, they live inside this suit of armor called culture for so long that they end up just being an empty suit of armor with nothing but a ghost inside walking and clanking around. And other people are just desperate to get out. And that's, I think, how we can help them out. But recognize that it is not, not, not a natural state or a natural human condition to believe in a hierarchy. And we know that because of the propaganda that is ne- that is needed to get people to believe this nonsense.
0: See, with schools becoming obsolete, the, just the idea of centralized education—I I, just—I can't see the state even holding on to its existence through all of these technological advances that are coming in the next couple generations. Nick?
2: Yeah, I'm still here. Um, and, you know, I definitely appreciate everything you both just said. Um, and Steph, the one thing I do have to say, you know, based on what you, you what you just said, is what about the confirmation bias? You know, the, what you've been talking about kind of recently is that you know you give people information that's counter to what they truly honestly believe in and, and it makes them just believe in those values even more even though that you, you you know you prevented this rational cohesive argument against it for whatever psychological reason they are still dead set against believing in statism or, or whatever else
1: no no but this is a, yeah yeah you have to listen to what i said I, I, I you know i said that they don't truly honestly believe it what, what happens in, in these experiments, my understanding is what happens is people are told a whole bunch of lies by people in authority and those people obviously are teachers, priests and parents uh, and they're told a whole bunch of lies as if they are pious and moral truths and what happens is it becomes extremely frightening emotionally, unsettling, destabilizing. It feels like a little death. you know. I think wisdom sometimes has right. been called a little death, and I think that's actually quite an accurate uh, uh, expression of it. Uh, orgasms have also been called a little death, and the yeah. two are probably not that far apart. <laughs> but, um, uh, but, but so the, the point is that they don't believe these things. But if you have an emotional defense, in other words, if it is really unsettling for you to even imagine that you've been lied to by people in authority your whole life, personal and sort of societal – then you'll simply run away from that knowledge because it's too alarming. It disrupts your personal relationships. This is the point I've been making low these seven years since I started the show, is that virtue, truth, reason, honesty, philosophy, uh, freedom, it disrupts your personal relationships because propaganda is 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 channeled through schools and churches and through the family. Right. I mean, so so I mean, this is why libertarians have such an exciting time at Thanksgiving dinner where we often feel like the turkey uh, on many levels. (laughs) And so uh, so it's just really important to understand it. It messes with people's personal relationships. If people aren't willing to hold the truth above personal relationships. Right. And that was Aristotle's basic argument, which he said when he was arguing against Plato's uh, uh, idea of the forms, he said, I love Plato, but I must love the truth more than my friends, Uh, and this I think is a very important thing. If people want the truth and are willing to go through the disruption in personal relationships to get there and either heal those personal relationships or find better ones, good for them. But most people will go back into the tribe of darkness, they will go back into the belly of the matrix, and they will pretend that the truth is a lie in order to live with the lie as truth.
0: Well, I suppose that's true about most confronted the first time. But if it was everybody, there'd certainly be no point to us doing this. Nick, thank you so much for the call. And Stefan, I think we have a tweet here that really is just for you from Liberty Panacea. In 20 or 30 years, there will be forums for libertarians called My Child is a Statist. Where did I go wrong? Uh, I put that forum at There, There are conversations like that there, aren't there? <laughs> oh yeah,
1: no, that my my child is a my child is a status. Where did I go wrong?
0: Or did did, did, <laughs> well, Ron, did Ron Paul start that thread? There's, I think that
1: uh, yeah, I mean, people have you know, I I've often suggested that it's not very healthy to have statists in your life because statism is like an evil virus. It's a, it, and it replicates itself through through language and through behavior. It's contagious, and uh, I don't like the idea of exposing my daughter to statism any more than I'd want her to, you know, play vo- beach volleyball at a leper colony. And so, of course, the question then becomes, okay, well, what if your daughter becomes a statist? Ah ha! Uh, but. Um, that's, you know, that's just not going to happen. Statism requires so much work, so much effort, so much propaganda that I would no more expect her to be a statist than I would expect her to wake up one day and be a full-fledged Zoroastrianism without <laughs> ever having been exposed to the religion. It's just not going to happen. Trust me. She's not going to wake up learning how to speak Mandarin if you've never been exposed to Mandarin. Anyway.
3: I know hello. I know a woman who is a, a mother and uh, claims to have been an anarchist like her whole life. And her, her son is uh, – as uh, a statist, I guess, to some extent, at least a minarchist. And I just find <laughs> that least. bizarre.
0: At least a minarchist. All right, 646, you're on the air. What's your name? Where are you calling from?
3: Evan
2: from New York. What's up, Adam?
3: Hey, um, what's happening,
2: I have a quick question. I don't It's from an old podcast. A while ago, Stefan did a podcast regarding drugs, and he wrote off drug use under roughly two categories. Number mm. one, it doesn't <laughs> elucidate any truths of the universe. If so, when you're off drugs, it to me that I have no issue with. Number two, it can't make you happier because it does make you happier. Why aren't you on drugs all the time? In the course of the podcast, he made two sort of assumptions that I'm questioning. He, was, he roughly drew a, bar, he drew a bar chart on a blackboard where he kind of just had happiness in like utils in a sort of way that if I prefer steak instead of chicken, I can kind of like assign a numerical number to that, which I'm wondering if he, if he wants to go in more depth in that. Is that truly how he believes happiness works, in which case? My understanding is he's breaking severely from the Austrian school of Mises who would say that if I prefer X to Y, all you know is I prefer X to Y at that point in time. My specific question is, in saying how clearly you can't be happier if you're on drugs, because why are you on drugs all the time? My question to Stefan Molyneux specifically, have you ever ridden a roller coaster? And if so, are you on one right now while you're on this podcast?
1: Yeah, now see, this is – unfortunately, this is a problem that I come up with from time to time, which is people reference arguments I made sort of five years ago or three million podcasts ago. And I, unfortunately, I don't have all my podcasts on the tip of my tongue. I will say, though, that there has been some very interesting work done with ecstasy and PTSD patients lately. Sorry, go I understand
2: ahead. the truth of the universe one the bullshit, right? That's – that clearly, you don't, you don't see truth of the universe when you, when you smoke TNT, for example. But regarding it being a recreational thing, as in, purpose of my life, I don't know about yours, is just for my, my right, happiness. And if at some time I want to, afterward, have a cocktail or have a cigarette or have marijuana, you know, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. So my question is, do you, would you agree with that currently?
1: Well it depends what you mean by wrong. I mean, is it immoral? Of course not. I mean, it's, it's not immoral to do to any of those things. I do think, though, uh, you know, so for instance, I mean, Gaber Maté is a physician who works um, in a sort of drug neighborhood in in Vancouver uh, in Canada. And he's written a great book called um, uh, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. Uh, And um, his argument, which seems very scientific to me, he's got reams of data and and, and explanations for it, seems to be, and I'm, you know, that regular drug users... What tends to happen is—I'll uh, try and keep this brief, and I'd really recommend the book. But, you know, there's there's happy joy juice in our brain, which we get, you know, just by being—virtue of being alive. Now, if people go through difficulties in childhood, then what happens is their happiness level goes down significantly. So where the average person may be at 100, they end up like 20 or 30. Uh, and this is just as the result of, of trauma and difficulties in their childhood. And what happens is then—let me finish—what happens is then when they try drugs— it boosts that more so than a regular person. So a regular person might go from like 100 to 110 or 120. But people who've who've had difficult childhoods, they go from like 20 or 30 to like 80 or 90. And they're like, they actually will say like, I didn't know what it felt like to be normal or to be even remotely happy until I had a drug. And then their former state of, unhappiness which for them was just the way life was becomes kind of unbearable and this is sort of the addiction cycle that that goes into it now if if some people take drugs when they're at a happiness level of 100 and they got 100 to 120 and they're like well that was fun and they may do it again or they may not or whatever in fact i think it's only eight percent of people who try heroin actually end up addicted and my argument i think or gabor mate's argument if i can paraphrase would be that they have difficulties in their childhood that are unresolved and so on So if people end up taking drugs to cover up a personal problem, then clearly that's not going to work like that. I mean, it's really understandable given the physiology of addiction, but it's really not a good idea. If somebody wants to smoke a joint at the end of the day or, you know, whatever, and they're generally happy, I don't think that's a big issue. I think that there probably would be other ways of achieving happiness that might be more fun uh, and more sustainable, but I don't think – I'm just really concerned about it as a cover-up for uh, or a way of avoiding dealing with childhood trauma because I think that obviously is very destructive for everyone around.
2: Evan? Right. I, I fully agree, and, and, and I fully agree to the extent that if someone's doing it to avoid reality, it's sort of more like a younger kid who has a miserable childhood, et cetera, et cetera, and they only are, quote-unquote, happy when they're getting high with their friends in the basement, that's a problem. But I don't wanna paint everyone with a drug like Adam Kokesh for example. I think a lot of people on this call and listening might know that he's tried marijuana once in a while. Yeah. I, I would think that, you know, someone like Adam who's seems to have a shit together, well, for the most part, in smoking joint is probably in a different category than like a twelve year old who's, you know, on the verge of suicide or something, smoking weed and claims that's the only thing that kills prevents
1: Killing. Well, sorry, just, just to be really clear, when Adam says smoke a bowl, what he means is a very steaming latte. Um,
0: <laughs> exactly. That,
1: that's so, so steaming that it looks like it's smoking. And I certainly agree that, especially if you use homo milk and strong espresso, uh, that it is very mind-altering. So I, just, I really wanted to be clear hey, for, hey, for those Stephon, people who want to Stephon, wear Stefan,
0: I have taken a strong stand. I am no hypocrite. I will not engage in your dangerous... Statist drugging of people with caffeine. I don't do caffeine. And carbs, I I do. Carbs, no, 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 Adam, you can't have <laughs> a carbs. If you yeah. carbs. I don't do carbs except unless they're in ice cream because they don't count then. All right, Evan. Thank you so much for bringing that glad up. It, I, I, really, I really appreciate that. And and Stefan has some definitely some interesting work on the issue of drugs, as uh, as as we do as well in a different perspective. You have we have we have a lot of callers I want to get to real quick here. Five one two. You're on the air. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Five
2: Hi, San Antonio, Texas. Go ahead. Hey, uh, Steph. So I just had a question for you. Um. So I, I've been reading a lot about the uh, Austrian community re- uh, lately. Uh, mainly, um, I know Walter Block was having some issues with you. He made some comments in regards to Ron Paul. Um. You know, and that you were having a disagreement with him on that, obviously, because, you know, holding to some kind of worship of the Constitution is obviously still an issue. Do you think that, that uh, one of the reasons why the Austrian School of Economics or some of the people in there are having issue with you is your views on child rearing and how that directly affects, you know, the people in the government?
1: I mean, I I wouldn't want to hypothesize as to why people would have issues with me. There are so many possible reasons as to why people might have issues with me. It's like like asking in a disco, where's this light coming from? You know, there are 12 disco balls, 12 searchlights, uh, and everyone's on ecstasy. So uh, there are so many possibilities as to why people might have an issue with me that I'd really feel I would do an injustice to those who don't like me by trying to narrow it down to something in particular. Uh, Of course, it's not the job of a philosopher to, to be liked. It's the job of the philosopher to pursue truth. I certainly, I mean, uh, I did a um, minor off-the-book debate with Walter Block uh, in Vancouver last summer. We're going to have a more formal debate uh, at um, right. the Capitalism and Morality Seminar Uh, next summer in in Vancouver, so I hope people will come out to that. Uh, He's a spanker. He was a spanker as a parent, and uh, my argument is that spanking is a violation of the non-aggression principle. Now, if my argument is correct and spanking is a violation of the non-aggression principle, I mean it certainly is not Uh, self-defense, then then, then it's a big problem (laughs) for a parent who has uh, repeatedly struck – A helpless independent child, that's not a very good moral position to be in. So I can really understand why people would have trouble if the argument is true. But of course, for libertarians to have trouble processing the non-aggression principle and its application is kind of tough to bear from a hypocritical standpoint, because we all running around saying to people, "Oh, taxation is a violation of the non-aggression principle. How come that bothers you?" You know, or uh, you know, uh, uh, war is the initiation of the use of force, the debts, the slavery of the children, and so on. And and we get we pretend to be so baffled when people have trouble processing the logical consequences of the non-aggression principle. So for people in the libertarian community to get Emotionally volatile around spanking violates the non-aggression principle. Maybe the argument's wrong. I put out a whole paper about it. It was published in the Phoenix E-Zine and all that. I've done podcasts and videos on it. I've had experts all over the place telling me I've got whole reams of scientific data and statistics and charts and graphs, a boring amount. Of, of backup. But maybe I and the experts uh, are completely wrong, in which case you find data to refute it. You don't just get all huffy and puffy and attack other positions. So again, I don't know, but I do know that in the libertarian community, there is, of course, a strong Christian element. Within the Christian element, not all Christians, but within the Christian element, there is a fair amount of spare the rod, spoil the child people. And if people have been hitting children uh, and there is a violation of the non-aggression principle, then they have spent their lives fighting things like the Fed and taxes and government and so on because that's a violation of the non-aggression principle, which they have done nothing and achieved nothing. What is it? Gary Johnson still got 1% of the vote, which is exactly the same percentage that people got in 1971 who were running for the libertarian office. So 40 years later, it's exactly the same percentage. So they've, they've spent their whole life fighting the non-aggression principle and achieving nothing, less than nothing – while in their own homes they've been repeatedly violating the non-aggression principle against the most helpless independent members of their family, that would be a pretty tough pill to swallow. So again, I have no idea, but it could be something to do with that. Uh, I certainly welcome debates, and I would be happy to have debates with libertarians uh, who have issues with me. I'm always open to to having debates with people. But that would be a guess. I don't know. But I mean, you'd, you'd probably have to ask Walter, and he may tell you that it's got nothing to do with that, and maybe he'd be right.
0: Well, Stefan, um, I I think voting is only uh, steady, voting libertarian is steady at 1%, give or take, because voting libertarian is a, a gateway to living libertarian, you only do it once, and then the next cycle, by the next opportunity, you're better, and you've realized, you move on. It's sort of like how many We're I think it's a positive sign that the libertarian party is serving in that function, is pulling 1% of the voters out of the system every year, and then the next time they don't come back.
1: Well, maybe, except we'd have to make sure that nobody was revoting Libertarian. And I think that there seems to be a cycle of people in the Libertarian political movement. And certainly for, you know, if it's a gateway to anarchism, then, you know, the vote, the hand you voted with is the hand that will never come clean. You got this Lady Macbeth feeling going on, you know, that steel wool, uh, Botox, Clorox, it doesn't, it's not going to come clean. But uh, hopefully, that's uh, it is a gateway drug, and of course, that is the argument for political action that it sucks people uh, out of the matrix, and they think they go into some place called politics, and they go into some place called the non-aggression principle, which is a whole different paradise.
0: Just one. Did voting uh, libertarian Sant- hand the election to Democrats? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't think we're going to get Stefan into handicapping elections. But thank you for the call, San Antonio.
1: Sorry. Did the libertari- Did voting libertarian uh, give the Democrats the election? I, I, I'm sure it had something to do with it, and I would really like to thank the Libertarians for that, because I'm very glad that the Democrats are going to be in power when the entitlement crunch comes, when the confrontation with the public sector unions comes. So, uh, you know, please, all Republicans and Libertarians, stay away from the Titanic. It has already hit the iceberg. We do not want to be at the helm when the ship goes down, else that's all we will be remembered for. So, sorry.
0: Yes, very, very astute, Stefan. And that's unfortunately just all the time we have. People should have been calling in earlier, really. We're getting them in uh, earlier. People, people uh, wait to the last. Don't you guys go to midnight? you get in, we go oh, to midnight. You don't, don't have another guest. <laughs> We've got another <laughs> guest coming <laughs> up. What was it? I, I can't believe. You a slut? <laughs> oh, sorry. You have another guest? Oh, who follows me? And, <laughs> and not just yeah, in the same night. I know, but it's oh uh, man. It's been, oh. well, if they
1: look, if they want to get my Adam Kokesh sloppy seconds, that's totally okay. I just, <laughs> oh, <laughs> just
2: damn. don't think that's.
1: Nice, but I can understand it. I, I have, guys, I'm
2: calling from Hawaii. It's my first time uh, tuning in, so uh, I'm a little bit off of the time zone.
0: All right, go ahead, 808. We got time for just one more here.
2: Yeah, you know, it, I, I live in Hawaii, a Democratic controlled state. Uh, I didn't personally vote this year, but I feel that uh, a lot of libertarians holding out on voting kind of uh, handed Obama the election. Not that I uh, believe in Romney or anything, but I believe that Romney would have. Uh, uh, hit the brakes a little bit as opposed to Obama hitting the gas pedal. That's just my personal opinion. I could be totally wrong, and I'm open to any discussion or debate about that, but that's just my personal
1: opinion on, on that issue. Uh,
0: Do you have a question for Stefan? Uh, yeah,
1: what's, uh, what's it like in Hawaii? I, I'm in Canada in December. Uh, so, um, are you currently huddled in the basement uh, in an igloo and wrapped in a, a caribou skin like Luke Skywalker on the planet of Hoth? Or Are you actually able to walk outside without your nipples turning into carbon diamonds?
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for the call, all the way from Hawaii. Stefan, I just want, just, just want to ask one last question. What do, you, what do you really think of Christians within the liberty movement? What, all
1: of them? I don't know. I, I try not to think in collective terms. Um, I, you know, I think that the influence of Christianity is not necessarily the most positive thing when we're trying to get a vote. Uh, A vote of confidence from younger people. Younger people are increasingly secular. A population uh, of uh, Christianity uh, has declined significantly, particularly in Canada, but also in the US. The number of people who are declaring themselves as atheists or agnostic is now, I think, up around 20% or so. Uh, The younger people are much less likely to be religious. And if they say, I believe in the state and... A magical Jewish zombie whose father killed him because uh, he didn't do anything wrong, but other people did something wrong that they can't be blamed for because they didn't have free will and it involved an apple and a talking snake and, you know, and and we're really into the non-aggression principle. I'm just a little bit concerned that the good ideas get mixed in with the superstition and, you know, don't come out particularly smelling like roses. I think that we need to have the same conversation within libertarianism, which should not be a flavor of politics but a subset of philosophy, like all human thought should be a subset of philosophy. I think we need to have the same conversations around superstition within uh, or religiosity within the libertarian community that we do have about the state outside the libertarian community, just to make sure that we have the correct level of integrity. And if it turns out that there are good reasons to believe in a deity, then I'll certainly change my position. And if it turns out that there are good reasons not to believe in a Deity, then we should always put uh, reason ahead of uh, personal preference because that's what we're asking society as a whole to do. We should lead that way within our own community.
0: And I have absolute faith that in the long run, reason will triumph over preference that is unproductive for human happiness. But, Stefan, we've got just a minute left. The free domain radio.com documentary manifesto is coming. Please tell us what we can do to bring it a reality of any sooner than, it, than anything we could possibly do to help out in the production of this documentary, and what we can do to help share it and distribute it, and, and what we have to look forward to from your manifesto.
1: Well... We've we've taken a bit of a uh, a different approach to funding uh, to to crowdfunding. Um, mostly, what we're doing is we're dealing in black market kidneys. So, if people, uh, I got, I got if one, you have like a spoon or a a salad fork or tongs or of any kind, um, if you could just um, mail me uh, uh, one kidney, not both, because. Um, Obviously, we need an audience. Uh, Mail me one kidney. Uh, We have them stacked up in a truck. We will be uh, uh, handing them out uh, in in exchange for money, which we're going to use to fund the documentary. Please don't send me any other organs. Um, It's really confusing. I'm not really good at figuring out which is which. So just kidneys and human kidneys, if preferable, and preferably your own. So that's the funding model. The documentary itself uh, is really a case from first principles that what's going wrong in the world is – Immorality. It's not a bad policy. It's not a bad president. It's not this party versus that party. It's not entitlements versus the military. versus. It's not about economic freedom. It's fundamentally about virtue. We violate the non-aggression principle. We violate property rights. Uh, if we do that enough as a, as a person, we know that our lives go very badly. And if we do that enough as a country, as a culture, as an entire civilization, then things are going to keep getting worse until we recognize the core moral principles that we're screwing up on repeatedly. And get them right. Things are just going to keep going wrong. And the only thing that's going to change is the speed and the manner in which things are going wrong. But the direction is still going to be the same. So I'm really trying to have a Matrix Unplugged movie. It's pretty funny. Uh, It's pretty entertaining. Uh, But I think it's very powerful in its, its arguments. And I hope people walk out of watching that movie or step away from that computer after watching it into a very different world than the one they stepped into. Uh, That really is the goal. I want this to be a reprogramming or a deprogramming of the human condition so no ambition is too high in the making of this documentary the animators are doing a fantastic job we have some unbelievable musical talent on board and so it's going to hopefully be done q1 of next year um, released for free there'll be dvd copies if people want that and you know i do want to send uh, a request out if people want to donate uh, i'm not expected to make any money but i'm hoping to make some real change and some real impressions and um, for those who have donated uh, thank you thank you so much you know we're burning through i think think about 10 or 12k a month in making it and so if anybody wants to help out i would hugely appreciate it because uh, i'm currently functioning on zero kidneys uh so um so that's not good so that's another reason why we want to get the movie finished because you know i'll need to pee (laughs)
0: cool oh now i need to pee stefan thank you so much for joining us i really appreciate it's been a blast as always the website freedomainradio.com we will have you back on as soon as we can come up with another excuse and Thanks. Now go and enjoy your other guest, I insist. <laughs> all right. Thank you again. All right. All right Take care. Coming up in just a few minutes, Steve Miller.